Hold on, I'm writing this down because I'm going to forget. What's this podcast called again? <laughs> Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. Welcome to Off Book. My name is Christine Ashenpong, and I... Sound happier. Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to Off Book. <laughs> Not that funny, Josh. Welcome to Off Book. My name is Christine Ashenbong, and today I am joined by the award-winning playwright, actor, and director, Terrell Abba McCraney, whose play The Brother Size is being staged in the Young Vic's main house. Welcome, Terrell, or should I say welcome back to the Young Vic. Um, your play The Brother Size is on right now in the main house. Um, how does it feel to be back at the Young Vic, staging this play again, or I guess, staging, we're staging your play again. How does it feel to be back at the Young Vic? I mean, the Young Vic is, um, you know, thankfully, my time at the Young Vic has always been um, welcoming. And, you know, I, it's strange to talk about it in terms of, again, I, I really feel like I've never left in a lot of ways. Um, you know, David Land has just made this uh, institution, along with all the producers here and, you know, the, the staff and and crew have made this place feel like a kind of um, a home, a, a, a place where everybody's welcome to come and, and get down to the artistic rigor. And so <clears throat> I always feel um, safe here, you okay. know. And then, uh, you know, I, I walk by, I don't know, I'm sure people don't notice, but I walk by every time I come to London. I, there's not been a time wow. that I've been in London I've not been in the building. Wow. Um, I may not necessarily be on the stage, but I'm certainly in 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 the building or near it. Um, and so, in that way, I feel like you know this extension, this you know this time for for us to go back on to the main stage um, is something more of a um, is is like it was it was always coming, and right. and now that we're here, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but still, again, it doesn't feel like we like I've been gone. It doesn't feel like the play has ever left, and it feels like. Um, you know, the play is, is, is deepening itself in the community here. And so you were here also for to stage in the Red and Brown Water, which is the first um, play in the Brother-Sister trilogy. What was that like compared to staging the Brother Size? I know the set was completely different, and obviously the story is very different, but um, did you feel like you were more seasoned or more um, prepared? Or I don't know, if you were, were you more used to being in the theater, I guess? Um, I think, I mean, they happen so, so close together. Right. They almost happen simultaneously. So, you know, there, there was no, um, time to prepare a kind of, um, dossier or toolbox of what to do in the okay. space. They both were, felt like an introduction in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and again, an introduction to a community of artists in, um, in London, particularly that I've never stopped being in contact with. So, um... For for a number of reasons, um, I always think of that that time is the same as not you know two different things. I think I think of it as one time. So, um, the smaller house, um, it has al- always felt like the the space that I knew better. Okay. Um, but brother size currently sitting in the Maria looks like you know again it never left like it never or like it was staged in there previously. Right. And, and, that's, and that's not true. Um, and so the space and the piece are, are um, feel like one. Okay. Um, so you started your journey as an actor, uh, started this journey as an actor, I should say. Um, so you went to DePaul for, was it theater? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all, um, my, all my training has been in theater, theater. So you can just, <laughs> if I went to a school, it was probably it's theater. theater. Yeah. Got it. Um, so what is it for you 
that acting brings to the table? Is it? Do you think that you're a better writer because of it? Um, they were the you know in the in the culture that I grew up in. Uh, when you were an artist, you were an art. You were an artist. <laughs> period. Mm-hmm. And so you had to do a lot of um, learning different dif- disciplines in order to get um, get at the complexity of your voice. Um, there were a lot of things that you were trying to relate in the world that if you didn't understand how to act and write mm-hmm. um, or sing and dance or um, paint and draw and you know and sculpt then there was a there was something you were going to be missing you you weren't going to be able to get um, all of the complexity of your experience out um, and because we were taught that way from an early age um, it just it seemed it made sense to invest in both equally and so I went to undergrad for acting and and realized that I hadn't had any formal um, uh, or conservative, uh, what's the word? Um, I hadn't had any sort of dedicated time to just playwriting. Okay. I had done, you know, acting and then everything else on the side, or um, I had been dancing but then doing everything else on the side. And I, I realized that I had had concentrated efforts in both of those lanes and not in writing. And so when I went to grad school, I went there specifically to concentrate on writing. But I never stopped doing the others. Okay. Um, and then you begin to work in um, with artists who clearly understand and believe in that philosophy. Um, and that's in, when I started to work with Peter Brook, who then introduced me to David Land, who, as you can see, um, too, doesn't, you know, conform to just writer. He's right. a writer, he's a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are the reasons why, you know, our conversations, though brief, were... Um, we already had a lexicon. We already right. had a kind of uh, vocabulary yeah. that made that made sense. And so, how did you actually get started in general? What what drew you to the theater? Do you remember your first theater theatrical experience? I don't, to be fair. I mean, I don't remember the first time I was on stage. I have shards of memory that of of being in front of people talking, but it started so early that I don't. I would be lying if I told you I remember really? it. Really? And what's what made you stick with it? Is it just the love for the art form? It certainly first? wasn't the love. Okay. <laughs> Okay, what was it? Um, um, I think, you know, the necessity of it, um, which I guess is a kind of love. Mm-hmm. Um, when something is necessary to your life or to your understanding, it, it can become a kind of love. But there, Lord knows there's been times that I have not, um, you know, loved being equally vulnerable, equally concentrated. It makes going to see other artwork really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't shut off that part of your brain. But I think absolutely... Um, you know, the need to make order or order chaos in my life um, made art necessary for me. Um, and so when you were at Yale, speaking of vulnerability, you wrote a bunch of plays, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. um, one of them being In Midnight, Black Boys Look Blue, mm-hmm. and then the Brother Size Trilogy within mm-hmm. a couple of weeks of each other, if I'm not mistaken. I wrote those actually the summer before, two summers oh, before. Wow. I wrote those when I was 22, so oh, 2003. Wow. Wow. Um, I just graduated from DePaul, and I had applied to Yale, but I hadn't yet been accepted. And a part of my um, my package to them was in Mo- in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, and uh, Brother Size, which at the time was called Caught. Okay, yeah. I like that. And what what made you change the title? Um, it was a dumb title. <laughs> okay, it sounded like a spy thriller, <laughs> and it's just not. What the story's about? Yeah, it's not. It's okay, not, it's not. About, it's not about the you know, um, you know, caught. Being caught to 
to me and sort of where I come from made a lot of sense because, you know, someone said, oh, they got caught. That makes a kind of sense. We know who mm-hmm. the, you know, we know who you've been caught by, by even just the phrase. Right. But it just was the, the piece is larger than that. It's not just about, um, you know, the prison industrial complex. It's not just about um, the kind of relentless laws um, extracted on black bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about how, you know, how the bonds of, of, of friendship, of brotherhood, of love are warped sometimes by these institutions and how, you know, how they thrive, how people thrive or try to thrive under the colossal weight of that oppression. And and then and and that sounds like a larger story, but at the end of the day, it was this intimate story between these these brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just didn't want it to be. I didn't want it to sound like this large thing. I wanted it to sound like this more intimate piece. Um, and so the the name changed. And it's loosely autobiographical. I mean, everything's loosely yeah. autobiographical. Is that is it difficult for you? Because it, it kind of, kind of feels like you're putting a piece of yourself on the stage. Is it hard for you to watch or hard for you to? see people interpreting it in different ways? I would love to talk to these artists who don't put themselves mm, on stage. Like, okay. I, no, no, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm being yeah. honest about that because people keep saying that all the time and it's always like this they this sort of shock and surprise, but I, one day I would love to meet these artists who are like, oh no, nothing of nothing me, me. Yeah. is on that stage. I sort of, you know, uh, I would reckon even Anna Devere Smith, who does a lot of research yeah. and does development of her pieces about other people, reckons that, you know, her intuition mm-hmm. gets her um, in the stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, her she has to care about those people in order to to That's draw them. Right so, uh-huh. um, but I would again, I just would, <laughs> I would love to meet these artists who are like, nope, nothing, nothing it's of nothing that is me. me. Right. But yeah, it's like <laughs> okay. I, but what happens when you're adapting something? So you've adapted Anthony and Cleopatra for RSC, and you also did still me. Yeah, I, mean, I put it in. I put it in Haiti, which right. is you know um, close to. It's as close to me as possible. I lived. Uh, in Little Haiti growing up mm-hmm. and um, you know we have the largest Haitian population outside of the country of Haiti oh, wow. in the United States um, and you know growing up with the folklore and the and people it, it made sense to me that the first uh, a play about revolution would be about the first successful slave revolt um, it seems I mean you're saying it so easily like it's like something that you would obviously think of but knowing that you've taken that story and adapted it to something that's completely different but the themes are the same. For someone like, like me who doesn't write plays, mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of like a genius idea. Sure. Well, I mean, the critics didn't think it was a genius idea, which <laughs> who is cares fine. What they think? Well, well, no. I mean, I'm, people care. But, yeah. Fair. But I, but I mean, if we're talking about bringing self to the piece, I had to do right. something that was intimate to me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't set it in, in Italy. Right. And make it make sense to me. Fine. It wasn't. It wasn't ever going to make sense in that way. I needed to talk about the way in which um, otherness works in the world that I understand, as I understand it, um, and how, you know, the pillars of the world can bifurcate just by somebody saying, no, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not um, bending to your will. So, you know, it's, I think, again, even, there's no nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do or that I do, it's rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the pieces that <laughs> that are, you know, just I'm just a hired hand on. Usually they're not very successful. Usually somebody's, you know, sort of been like, hey, we think you can write, do this. And then we do it. And then they're like, oh, why is this yeah. not that great? And it's <laughs> like, well, because probably I'm, I'm only doing what you're asking me to do. I'm not actually investing myself in it. Right. Um, and so for the brother size and the brother sister plays, 
there's a lot of obviously Yoruba mythology and stories behind it. What drew you to that specifically? Again, I wish, I wish there was like some like Answer. really, well, some really dope yeah. like oh, you know, I I researched that. You know, it really is. I was a kid, and those stories were around folklore stories around my neighborhood. I mean, it's interesting the Black American experience in the South, especially in the Southeast where I'm from, is really can be kind of different because we we have uh, a large part of the Yoruba um, religion and, and, and doxology um, is woven in our Caribbean brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my family has Caribbean roots. And so the stories that I, I heard, that I, the myths that I learned, the parades, the dances, you know, you, you as a stupid kid, you ask questions like, oh, well, why are they, you know, why is he wearing that color or why does you know why is that person only allowed to wear white mm-hmm. and why are these people you know um why are these people pouring you know water out of that gourd and right. you, so you and you hear and you begin to learn about um all of those mythologies cosmologies beliefs religious practices that are still at play right and so for other people you know i think it's just a, a story but for you not only more. just a story but i have friends who, who are like oh we don't talk about that that doesn't exist and right. i'm just like oh but that's <laughs> the way that you—that's literally your culture. Yeah. Um, is I, it surprising for you that they're not—they don't embrace it as much as someone who wasn't necessarily from Nigeria or someone that wasn't raised to think that that's? I mean, my Nigerian friends are the ones who are usually like, "Oh, we don't talk about those right. things." Um, right. But I don't. It's 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 surprising because again, this is this is where people you'll see these are people's ways of life. Mm-hmm. Where I'm from, mm-hmm. there are there are people who are you know. Children of Ogun and children of Chango who, you know, practice and and build altars and you know I I know that if I walk into certain certain houses I have to, you know, not look at altars or I can't right. be naked in front of them. Like I just there are things that I grew up knowing, mm-hmm. um, and I met people as I got older who explained more densely their own practice, but yeah it does it does surprise me that people that it's not a part of people's. Um, Daily, yeah, yeah, daily experience, especially because the these things originated with them, or, or uh, this religion originated in their culture. But you know, I, I'm sure that's how you know some people feel about Catholicism. Of course, you know, there are people who are Italian and grew up very very near the Vatican. Right. <laughs> Just, <laughs> so it's not a big part. It's of, not a big part yeah. of their their understanding, and that's you know that's the way life is but you also have to recognize that a person who grew up like myself Mm -hmm. who grew up in you know charismatic religions um both uh, theological and um, polytheistic i i had just a different worldview, and so they just made their way into my stories um and i again i wish there were some like cool story behind it well yeah because <laughs> you know a dream well because people people like to you know when people talk about inspirations for work they yeah. like to think about um these sort of scientific ways in which these things are brought together and i guess the science happens in dreams the science happens in in the imagination but there was no moment when i was like oh if you take two parts of this three parts of that mm-hmm. mix it together for 45 minutes you'd bake this you know mm-hmm. um and if you see the brother size you'll recognize that that's not the case no one uh or at least i I can't even f- figure out how some of that stuff got on the page, let alone whether or not, you know, that I did some magical alchemy somewhere. <laughs> um, What's your creative process like? Do you remember writing this particular story um, and just thinking, yeah. you know, one day it's going to be on stage or? 
Yeah, I mean, I wrote it for the stage. Right. So it just, you know, that. Did it ever occur to you that it was going to be this, you know, big play where that was performed around the world? I mean, it's still a small play. It's only got. Do you really consider? You consider? I mean, okay, big in the sense that it's an important piece of work. It was always important to me. Okay. That's fair. That's very fair. It was always important to me, and so. you know, the fact that other people find it important is great, right. but it, it, it hasn't diminished importantness to me. There are, you know, you write pieces all the time that you're like, this is not that important to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's even if it's good, even if it's great, people are like, I love that piece. I'm like, cool. I'm glad you love it. You know, <laughs> I like it. Right. I may have care for it. But um, but, you know, I try to write work that I, I find I think is important and is urgent. Um, for me, mm-hmm. and hopefully other people will think so too. But it's the risk you run. You can't always predict when other people will will like find so. it important or not. I mean, I'm sure uh, Shakespeare looking at King John right now is going, "Well, why doesn't anybody ever want to do this play?" <laughs> you know, it's, I I thought it was really important when I wrote it down. Why doesn't anybody want to do it? <laughs> um, and you know, you just can never know. You never know what um, why other people don't find mm-hmm. interest in it. Did you think that your name would be uttered among, like, the James Baldwins and the August Wilsons and Lance Bryce? Did you ever picture yourself kind of, you know, sitting among them and being in the same kind of conversations? I know you might not think that, but for someone like me, <laughs> <laughs> little old me. Little old me. Um, that's very, you know, I, I, I can only be honored and fascinated by by being mentioned in, the, in those um, in those climbs. I mean, I think, I, I think... I think of them as as atmosphere. I think of them as you know, um, otherworldly. Um, Lorraine Hansberry, particularly um, one of the the few African American names in terms of playwriting that are um, that are women mm-hmm. that we can sort of pass around. And I I look at her legacy, and I keep thinking to myself, well, there's so many incredible women following right behind in mm-hmm. her in in her footsteps, and so many that we've lost along the way that we don't remember and I oftentimes just think you know trying to make sure that we can we don't forget yeah mm-hmm. we don't forget to remember um but yeah no I don't I don't think my I mean I'm 37 mm-hmm. um and it just usually you know playwrights are usually lauded in their 50s and 60s and so being 37 and 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 having you know having more work to do I just think of the work ahead um and I also think, again, I think about making sure that there's space and room for other voices and how to engage those those voices. Um, I also try, as as difficult as it is, to um, to talk less about work. Okay. <laughs> no, I just I don't mean that as no, a friend no, no. to you. I just, no, 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 um, because it just because the more you talk about it out loud, the uh-huh. more some things start to become you know. Uh, seems weird or no not. they just start to get pinned down to that thing that you said okay um which is always which is fine if if it weren't if you weren't working in an ephemeral field mm-hmm. if you weren't working in the place where your imagination flux and something else inspires and mm-hmm. then that totally changes the color of the thing um and so I don't I try not to think about a work is fixed. I think of it as, you know, when the people get together to make that piece happen, mm-hmm. um, it could be anything. It could be magnificent. It could be a disaster. Um, but to allow the space for that to, to happen is the is the point, right. um, which is different than film. Right. right? right. Which is film is something that once you film it, it's there. It's yeah. there forever. But theater is that thing that, you know, it's about making sure that there is possibility that a person 
from anywhere could kind of figure out their way into or around a piece. They may not be in it. They may be producing it. Mm -hmm. They may be, you know, reading it, but finding their way in um, to make a performance happen or to make a theatrical event happen um, has to, you have to kind of try to keep that as open as possible. And the more we sort of talk about like, well, this is the way I write and this is the legacy in which I ascribe to, Mm -hmm. you start to, you start to see yourself um, limiting not only your own possibilities, but the possibilities of who you could work with next or who you want to work with next or Mm -hmm. who, you know, who's doing something exciting that you want to, you know, engage yourself in. Mm so yeah, I just I try not to think about I try not to think about work in those terms. Okay. I, I try to think about the I try to think about work as something much more open and um yeah. So you spoke you just touched on the difference between film and, and theater, writing for the film and theater. For you, what was the biggest learning f- when you were adapting um something that was meant to be on stage to a film? Um, was there anything like a big like realization like this? Oh, is you're how... talking about Moonlight. Yes. Um, well, if you read the original script in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, it was written for the for the camera. Right. Oh, I did not know that. I know it was supposed Nobody to be. Nobody knows that. Okay. <laughs> I know <laughs> it was supposed to be three they... parallel stories. Um, or was it? So the original way in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue worked was you would const you would if you take Moonlight, which breaks down in three chapters, mm-hmm. slice it up. And put it in or and put everything in order of time, mm-hmm. regard time of day. Oh wow! Okay. So not time of like year, but literally. So you would see little waking up in the morning. You would see um, Chiron waking up in the morning. You would see Black waking up in the morning in consecutive shots. Okay. All the way until the end of the um, wow. to the piece, and you know Barry saw that. <clears throat> And thought that that was interesting, but also thought it could be confusing, mm-hmm. confusing visually. And mm-hmm. so he uh, wanted to iron it out and put it in three chapters, which I thought was a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he did that, and that's how the script for Moonlight got 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 done and shot. Mm-hmm. But when I was twenty-two, I didn't know, you know, I knew how to write plays, mm-hmm. and I knew I would have to write films. Right. And so I wrote a film script and I wrote a play script, and those were the two. Wow. Okay. And they took so. Do you feel like you have a responsibility to tell these kind of stories as um, a black American? Because there's, I'm, I don't want to say there's so few, but the representation obviously is growing. But back when you were writing it, did you feel like you needed to get these stories out specifically because you wanted to see more of this on stage, more of this on screen? Um, Again, no, I was being selfish. I was 22, so I was dumb. And I was like, um, you know, I was writing roles for myself and my friends. Right. I wrote uh, um, Caught. Mm-hmm. Slash the brother size. I couldn't think of the old title because it's so bad. <laughs> uh, I I wrote the brother size for myself and two other actors who you know one of them is my best friend um, to this day, and you know we were in Chicago we were living in Chicago and I wanted to have a play for us to do so I wrote one. Um, I didn't want to do uh, as much as I love Lorraine Hansberry. I didn't want to do. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to try to audition for Walter Lee Younger for the 19th time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, so I was trying to write scripts that I could be in. Um, and then the same thing is for uh, In Moonlight. And I was like, well, I've never seen a film like this. Mm-hmm. And the films that I have seen like this are, you know, few and far between. So I'll just write one. Um, not, again, not knowing much about film writing. I mean, now students 
my age would have had Final Draft. They would have, you know, iPhones that can film everything. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't have that, so I just wrote with the best understanding that I had. I wrote, you know, interior, exteriors, cut twos, and wow. And um, yeah, and it was, and again, even you know, when Barry talks about that script, he talks about like trying to preserve most of the voice in it. But it is, you know, a 22-year-old kid trying to piece out um, a lot of my experiences onto a, a medium that I, at that time, had little to no experience with. Was there a lot of editing? Did things change a lot between, I mean, it was a really long time gap, I'm sure, mm. between the original script and then it actually being filmed? Um, Not between what Barry, I mean, again, what Barry really did was order Got the it. world. Mm-hmm. Um of, yes, there were things added for sure. And mm-hmm. there were also things that, you know, when he was shooting, he just had to shoot what mm-hmm. he was shooting and not, you know, sort of be a slave to the script, um, which I thought, which is, you know, what makes film fantastic or amazing is that you, you, you it's a director's medium. Mm-hmm. And so you hope to God that you get a director with a great eye who's not going to go, well, that's not what they said in the script but a more so go, well, what they're saying right now is the essence of what I need to get. Right. Um, so a lot of what he, so yeah, the script, the f- final script that he's, he wrote looks pretty much like the film. Um, and, you know, and that script has a lot, has just so much from the original. It has so much from the original script. Most of those scenes, the dialogue, um, he extended the third act. Um, and so it's just, yeah, it, it was, I was not shocked to see, I was shocked to see it because I, it had been so long, but I was not shocked in, in, in the way that some people feel like when they go see something that they, you they know, created. that's been, mm-hmm. you know, uh, edited and shifted, that they don't see themselves in it anymore. C- quite the contrary. I saw more of myself than I, I thought I had put in it. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you saw the movie in its entirety? Yeah. And what was your feelings afterwards? I was, do- I thought it was dope. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like, this is dope. This is great. I mean, I, you know, I didn't expect... It. I think that first time was... Um, uh, what's the word? I maybe, not, maybe I didn't understand what had happened. Right. I thought it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. It was, you know, stunning. Mm-hmm. I thought it had... I, and I walked away being like, that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. And also, to be fair, I thought about maybe, you know... 50,000 people would see it. Right. Max. <laughs> you know? Right. Because I because I just felt like, you know, it's an art film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in, in the lives of these young people. Um, you know, how many people are going to be interested in, in those those that corner of my life, of mm-hmm. Barry's life. So, you know, I have hopes that it will be received well mm-hmm. when people do see it. But who knows who, you know, I, I know enough about <laughs> marketing films, mm-hmm. television, theater, that, you know, sometimes things just... It's hit or miss. Yeah. yeah. They, people, they, they just don't. And then the, the opposite happened. Right. And the, that I wasn't The huge ready. opposite. Yeah, I wasn't ready for that at all. But it's a good thing to not be ready for, I guess. Sure, sure. Rather than the opposite. I like surprises, so okay. I'm, I'm good either way. <laughs> um, and you touched on paving the way for the next generation mm. um, of creatives. Do you, I know that you were mentored by Peter Brook, or you worked mm-hmm. for Peter Brook, and I know that you were actually August Wilson's assistant mm-hmm. for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching a video, and there was a really funny story about an iPod. Can mm. you share that with us? Because I was cackling. Oh, sure. I mean, sure. I don't fudge. 
I'm trying to remember exactly. Oh, you mean when he gave me one? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, he made me buy myself an iPod. He said he wanted to buy his daughter a gift. I mean, this is a longer story, and I'm telling it really badly. Though, um, I mean, I feel like the gist of the story is still very hilarious. Um, sure. <laughs> the um, but he really wanted me, he really wanted me to go get this iPod for his. This is back in. This must have been 2004. Okay. Yeah, it must have been 2004. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think I was a first year. And, you know, um, and so anyway, I, I, came to, I came to the Yale School Drama and he was there doing radio golf. And so I was made his assistant, which God only knows why they did that, because um, I'm the worst assistant ever. I'm not very good at organizing my own life, let alone anybody else's. Uh-huh. So, um, did you apply for the opportunity, or kind of did they kind of No, they you? were like, "You black, he black. <laughs> you're mm, okay. <laughs> you're paired," which was like, yeah, suspect. Low key racist, but you know, it's hey, they were trying, you know, <laughs> they were trying. So, um, but I was, you know, I was, I was excited to be in the room, and that, and August was really gracious and really generous in that he would introduce me to all the artists he was working with. Mm-hmm. And to this day, you know, it, it's sort of, you can't stop thanking people for introducing you to other people. It's right. really the kind of, the only thing that as artists we can really do is sort of look around and say, hey, you should meet this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell that to my students all the time because they think, oh, you can impart some wisdom on how to do this thing. Right. And I'm like, actually, you're going to figure out better than I will ever tell you how to do the thing. Mm-hmm. When you really need it to be done, when you're really focused on trying to make something happen, you will figure out the how. The best thing I can do is introduce you to a bunch of people. And August was amazing at that. He'd be, you know, he'd sit people down and say, here, you should meet this person. This person is going to be amazing or this person has an amazing vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I also was like annoyed all the time because I was a first year and I was like trying to get my life together and he you know he was like hell bent on getting this iPod and I was like yo I don't there is no Apple store here <laughs> like you know the nearest Apple store was in Purchase New right. York and we were in the middle of Connecticut and you know you also don't have an Amazon to just click and it wasn't you know mm-hmm. it wasn't that kind of like you know the drones weren't flying mm-hmm. freely it just wasn't that kind of world um, and so we had to go to, I had to go to Best Buy which was in Orange and it wasn't that far but it was far enough I didn't have a car mm-hmm. so I had to like swindle a car from one of my classmates and be like yo August wants an iPod yeah I know let's go get so it. casual and he gave me this wad, like this envelope, like it was a per diem. This is the part that kills He gave me like this, like 500, he was like, how much does an iPod cost? And I was like, I don't know. And I, I'm, and I just told him like $500 mm-hmm. because, and I mean, it didn't, it cost about three. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, give me five because I don't know how much it's going to cost and I don't want to go back and of I don't course. want, so I was like, just give me. So he gives me like $20 bills, like $500 worth of $20 bills. And I was like, this, like, I felt like my grandmother. <laughs> You know how, like, they give you way too much money, yes. and you're like, nah, I got all these books. So I'm sitting here with this money, and I'm like, Jesus, in the name, please. <laughs> I hope they have this iPod. And I go, and I'm, and the guy's like, what do you need? And I was like, the best, biggest. iPod money, August Wilson's money can buy. I basically. just want this amazing thing. <laughs> give it to me. Mm-hmm. And they were like, do you want the, do you want the insurance? I was like, the insurance. Everything. The, the everything. Nine. The mm-hmm. Apple Care, mm-hmm. the, like, everything. Um, and I just spent it and I brought, I came back and I had class. I had to go to my next class and I was like, here, 
here you are, sir. And I left. And I kind of like, and then he texted me on my phone, like, oh, I need to see you again. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know how to work this iPod. Right. So I don't have one. Right. Like, all I got is this Mac that I just got. I'm, you know, I don't know how to. Right. You're not the Apple genius. Yeah. Like, what is going on? And he's like, yeah, um, I need you to. Go. And so he, we're sitting outside and it's cold in New Haven because it's New Haven. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there and he's smoking and he's like, you know. You all you have a you have a very strong voice, but you need music. You always need music. And then he gave he gave me the iPod, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh. And I started crying. Oh. And his people, the people inside the theater were uh, inside the uh, the cafe were laughing because they knew it was going on. And I was oh just wow! Like, so yeah, so I took the iPod, and it la- it worked for a long time. Um, and then I buried it at Sundance actually. Did you? Yeah. Just as a like a, a ceremonial kind of thing. Yeah, it died. It's just stopped working, and I'm sure it's like not biodegradable at all. But <laughs> I put it in like a really nice box. Um, so, but I buried it there because I just was like, this is a really beautiful place. It was the first place I'd gone to outside of school. Mm-hmm. Um, when I graduate, when I graduated, that was the next place I was, and I was like, this is. I think it should be here. It just felt right. It did. Mm-hmm. It did. So do you have any other words of wisdom from August or even from Peter Brook or any of the other people that you've come across and been mentored by or worked with? Well, I'll with? see Peter in a couple of days, so I'll ask him if okay. he's got any words, words of wisdom. He always says really yeah, dope things, but it's better people. to hear it from him in person, Fair. Um, which is great because he's still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> I try not to, again, give too many words of wisdom. I try to, you know, put it in practice. And I think spending time and, sp- and investing your time in artists is the best thing you can do. So I try to listen to artists when they talk to me. I try to, you know, when they ask me things like, except for when they do things like, hey, can you read mine? I say no. Um, (laughs) I don't have time. Well, I have, you know, I have a class. Yes. Um, I have, you know, I have nine students plus the 180, 200 applicants trying to get into the program. And so I feel like if I, if I, pretend like I've got all this time to be reading mm-hmm. all of these things. I'm someone's gonna be hurt. So okay. just let people know I actually don't have the time for you right now or time to read that mm-hmm. right now. And my impulses probably won't be great because you know better, but I'm happy to talk to you about what you are trying to do. I'm happy okay. to t- to talk to you about to listen to those things if I have the time, but it just gets difficult to try to like take someone's work, read it and then give Critique back it. feedback. Right. Well give back good feedback. Right. Because usually I'm just going to be reading it to get through it mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if that's what you really want, which I don't think most people do, right. I would never want to send somebody stuff something so they could just read it to get through it. Right. I'm probably sending them something because they can so they can read it and say this is Valuable amazing, that, right? right. right. Um, or tell me like you know how it's close to amazing. Right. And that you know, it's it's that moment when I ask people like, what do you actually want? Mm-hmm. Do you actually want me to? say you're talented mm-hmm. or do you what What actually are you asking me for right. what do you think that I can Continue. do right. and most people think it's some sort of proximity to fame and I'm like I can't Right. in fact if I could give you mine I would fair right. are you really reluctant to be called famous or be considered famous I'm very shy I don't like to do, I mean I'm not a very uh, I mean I engage I like engaging with artists mm-hmm. and I love being able to make work Mm -hmm. so if the price of that is being known a little bit more Mm -hmm. that's okay (laughs) but it's not it's not my favorite thing it's fair 
I feel like most creative people don't really appreciate Ooh. Spotlight. Ooh, I feel like more serious creative people. Even the serious really? ones. Really? There are people who like that Spotlight. Wow. There, are, I know. So I have some talented friends mm-hmm. who are, I would say, better artists than I am. <laughs> better writers, better actors, better dancers, and they like that Spotlight. Really? It's important to them. It's important to be known and to be named in certain ways. You know, I get that. A mm-hmm. large part of me gets that, mm-hmm. especially the part that is about access. Right. Right? That's important to me. Mm-hmm. I would be lying if I told you access isn't important. Mm-hmm. It's important to be able to... Be able to walk into those rooms and being invited. Well, not even walk into those rooms, but be able to go off and do my thing. You know, Fair. if I if if Anthony Welsh came to me today, who's in Brother Size, mm-hmm. um, for those of you listening who don't know, Anthony Welsh uh, was in Brother Size here. Uh, before and also is a dear friend of mine. And if he was like, hey, OT, I want to get together and do some work. And somebody told me like, oh, you guys can't because, you know, mm-hmm. you need to go do these other things. Right. That would drive me nuts. Right. <laughs> right? That would drive me crazy. So the access to be able to like work with the people I want to work with on the things that I want to do mm-hmm. is important to me. And that and that means, you know, in this system that we work in, you have to get gain an, a level of notoriety so people can leave you alone. Right. <laughs> At the same time, there's people there are people who, you know, want to be able to do other things, call their own shots, and mm-hmm. um, but want it is about the spotlight. It is it literally is about the recognition and feeding the ego kind of thing. It's I don't know. Well, listen, it's not my it's not of my course. road to travel, so mm-hmm. I can't really explain mm-hmm. um, all of it. But I've seen. But I, you know, I think I think it's a myth that it's only in. Um, less serious artists i know some very serious and very talented and very like amazing artists mm-hmm. you know who are who are not just twitter happy right but, but want to be recognized for what they They're do hard. and i think it, a part of me empathizes greatly i'm like i i totally hear you mm-hmm. i absolutely hear you and it probably coming from me it probably sounds even worse because you know people i i i certainly have received been lucky enough to receive so many you know great accolades mm-hmm. that sometimes i'm just staggered to get um, so I recognize people wanting that, mm-hmm. but that is not my end goal. Right. My end goal has never been to do that. I, I, I always told, <laughs> I always told my friends, I was like, look, I just want to garden in my backyard <laughs> and be able to do theater. <laughs> the little things. You know, and be able to make films and theater and like performance in the way that, you know, excites me. And mm-hmm. if I can do that, I promise you, I will, be you know, happy. I'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's my level of happiness. And so that's if I'm rambling towards anything, it's that, you know, what, what is your, what is your level of happiness, your stasis of happiness? Mm-hmm. Like what will actually make you happy? Right. Because if it's a thing that you have to constantly chase, it actually isn't making you happy. It's giving you momentary pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not sustainable. The sustainable joy is what you're after. Right. It's always what you're after. And if you, and if you can get sustainable joy, if you can mm-hmm. get something that's going to sustain, then you've done it, you know, <laughs> you, you've won. Are those the things that you kind of, the things that you tell your students? At... I try to, but again, they're on different paths. Fair. You know, again, there are some, I have some students who are like, I want the recognition. Right. And I'm like, cool, that's great. Mm-hmm. I can't teach you recognition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't teach you stardom. Right. I can't teach that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to teach it. What are you teaching them? I What's teach... your day-to-day like? Uh, depends. My first year is... Um, it's a lot of making them look at their work. Okay. It's a lot of going, what do you want? What are you actually what are you after? What are you what are you saying here? Why do you want to say it? Then it's also like 
put the paper down, go into a room and make something, mm-hmm. which I think freaks them out a little bit. Right. Um, with the second years, it's a lot about looking at structure. Okay. It's a lot about looking at how things are put together, how other people put things together, how they think they put things together in relationship to other things. Mm-hmm. So looking at, you know, classic work or what people think of as classic work, right. looking at other plays and looking at their structures in relationship to the work that they've done mm-hmm. and just seeing how if they can gain tools um, an understanding of how to craft um, their own work. And then the third year is it really is about life. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. are you just, are you like their therapist who kind of kind of come to you? And- N- no, but sometimes I, f- I wish I were. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say things like, you know, what are you, you know, how are you going to do your taxes? Where do you want to live? Wow. What time of day do you write? You know, what's what's your writing cycle like? Do you have one? Do, mm-hmm. Are you just you just write when you can? Do, are you are you happiest busy? Are you happiest when you're not busy? Mm-hmm. Can you do another job and write? Um, what else are you interested in? Are mm-hmm. you interested in leadership? Are you interested in, uh, you know, um, freelance artistry? Like what what are you after? Mm-hmm. So that then they can start practicing that before they leave school. <laughs> so it's a three year program and it's you're with program. the same group of stu- students all the, through the three years. Mm-hmm. Is it? OK, wow. So you get to know them really well. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as, much as, they, as much as they let me know. Okay. Um, and what was it like that first year? Was it something you've always wanted to do, teach? Yeah, I've been teaching all my life, really. I started peer educating when I was 12. Wow. Um, and so, you know, it's always been a part of my life, it, like writing, mm-hmm. like like acting. It's just always been there. Um, is it hard to teach someone to write? I guess you're not teaching people how to write, more so to fine-tuning their skills. But is it hard to do as someone who writes so frequently? Because everyone has their own teaching process, is, right? Teaching is hard, mm. period. I mean, because people are individuals, and so people learn differently. Right. Um, and I think the good teachers know um, know that. So I try to surround myself with excellent instructors mm-hmm. who know that there's not one way to get a student to learn right. a thing. Um, but it's exhausting. And like, all, like any job or any profession, it's mm-hmm. exhausting because you have to be... Um, it in itself is an art form because you have to be adaptable. Mm-hmm. You have to have some some movement you know and also have a rigor to know actually this is what i'm doing Mm -hmm. and this is your limit yeah right is it um kind of rewarding to see them graduate and go into the world has anyone done anything i don't know my first class is my first class will graduate in may oh wow and i didn't i mean i didn't i didn't uh pick this class Mm -hmm. so these are students who i inherited gratefully so Mm -hmm. um but still love them to death and What's exciting? I mean, I get excited. Graduation, I probably won't even be there, to be mm-hmm. fair, because <laughs> I'm just not good at goodbyes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just will be like, you guys are good. Yeah, Great. <laughs> yeah my awesome. email address if you need anything. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call me. You know where my office yeah, is. Yeah. It's fantastic. But they, you know, I I enjoy just seeing the work that they do day to day. They bring in things sometimes. And I'm just like, you know, this is amazing. And I get um, excited and inspired by their work. What is it about the creative process that drives you? What do you love about it? And what do you hate about it? Um, I I mean, I love, again, collaboration. And I love the discourse that happens in, in, in collaboration. And be it with an audience, be it with, you know, another artist. Mm-hmm. But I, I enjoy what people can come up with together. Okay. And what do you not like about it? Um, having to... Sometimes, you know, I had a student ask me... Um, a high school student. I also teach high school students. Oh, wow. um, In what capacity? As an actual teacher? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I had a, I have a, a summer program that I teach in, uh, in Miami, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. 
mostly high school and middle school students. Um, I also teach at this organization called Young Arts um, in Miami, which every year they bring in a group of high school students who um, who applied and have you know ranked amongst the best in the country, um, and award them you know on a week's intensive. Wow. Yeah, and so sometimes I teach with them, and they you know they always ask things like you know um, you know what how do I stay, how do you stay focused? Mm-hmm. How do you, well, you know, what, and focus isn't the hard part. The hard part is at some point you do have to eat. <laughs> I was expecting you to say something so like profound. You you have to eat. But it is Literally, profound. <laughs> it is profound. You're right. I mean, you have to eat. And like, if you don't have money to buy food, you can't be making art. Right. Exactly. And so sometimes you have to make art for food. Right. And that's something that you're not necessarily proud of, but that will pay the bills. That's terrible. Right. I mean, that's, that's, but then you have then you have to sort of try to conscribe your um, being into this thing in order for it to make money. Right. Um, and it just it becomes it can become tiresome. I've watched people walk away from the the work because of that. Really? Wa- yeah. You, we all know friends or have friends who've, you know, um, they just couldn't do it. Their soul wouldn't let. It's them. not they even couldn't do it. Just stopped wanting to. Okay. And which is and again I I greatly, you know, if I could be a lawyer. <laughs> You would. I would do it, <laughs> but I can't. I, I don't have the constitution for it. I don't. Um, so. Okay. Um, has your recent success? I shouldn't say recent success because I hate that your success. I feel like your whole life has been a success thus far. <laughs> well, I'm still living, so that's a success. <laughs> um, your win at the Oscars has that changed your focus at all in terms of what you want to do, upcoming projects? I know that you are in a position now to choose your collaborators and choose the products projects you want to work on. Um, but has it changed it completely where you're turning away from something and going towards something else? No? No. <laughs> you're still doing what you love. I mean, the projects that I was doing before the Academy Award, I'm still doing now. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, I was teaching before the Academy Awards and I'm teaching now. So. Okay. Um, the only thing is now it people ask me that question more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there are people who will come up and sort of say, don't you want to do X? And I'll be like, nope. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm still working. I still was on a trajectory to work with really incredible people. The people I was working with before, um, some of the people who I was working with in Moonlight, Andre Holland, mm-hmm. um, for example, um, Brian Henry, uh, Sterling Brown, Mahershala Ali. I mean, those people were around and in the industry, and I was, you know, trying to work with them before before and so you know and now we you know we still work together or we are working on things together so that i mean the only thing that shifted again is this there are more people listening to when you know if i say i want to do a project with x mm-hmm. they'll they they don't think about it as long they still say no they still you know will find a way to, to not let it for happen. good reason i'm sure sure <laughs> oh, sure i'm sure there's some good reason um so speaking of the Oscars, I feel like it's inevitable to talk about, but that white suit that you were wearing was quite possibly the best thing I've ever seen. Oh, that's dope. That's nice of you. <laughs> I like that suit. Uh, you looked really good in it. I wish I could wear it more often, but... Um, <laughs> you could. You could have come yesterday to press night in it. It's kind of a one-time thing, though, once you wear that suit <laughs> in that Kind of like space. a wedding dress. Yeah. It actually is a groom's... Is it? Yeah, it's a oh, groom's wow. tux. Okay. Yeah, Octavius Terry. Um it's it's his uh his uh groom's collection and i saw it and i was like i want to wear that <laughs> and he said yes um 
No, actually, what? He, well, he, he didn't. He didn't say no. He was. <laughs> he was just like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, you need a suit for the. And I was like, you know what? It'd be really dope if you let me wear this to the <laughs> Academy Awards. And he was like, all right. So I went in, and the funny thing was, um, I tried it on, and it fit. Just right off the rack. Yeah, he only had. I think he funny. tucked in one thing. Not even tucked. He like hemmed the bottom just because I was wearing a certain shoe. Okay. But if I was wearing the boots that I normally wore, he actually wouldn't have had to do anything. So it was fate, I guess. It's kind of like Cinderella slipper, fitting magically. It was pretty dope. <laughs> it was pretty dope. Do you yeah. remember that night vividly? Is it something you're gonna yeah, remember? Yeah, I have. You know, I have a really good memory, so I okay. remember most things mm-hmm. really vividly, except of course, like, I think the first time I performed on stage was like a Martin Luther King speech when I was five. Wow. But again, see, I just have shards of that memory. Okay. But from that point on... It's crystal clear. Pretty clear. Wow. <laughs> so I'm pretty, you know, there's a few things that I'm just like, oh, I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I remember it. Yeah, for sure. What was it like, the combination of the hard work that you did with Barry writing it in 2002, did you say? Yeah, that's when I, the original script was written. Um, what was like, just kind of realizing that you're basically the work of your life, I want to say, up to this point, has been recognized by, you know, some of the most successful and most influential people in the industry? I think, um, I always think, it's weird. I think about that moment as more so a recognition of um, people coming together to tell an important story. I mean, because, again, it, it, that, st- <laughs> that, that script had sat around for at least 10 years mm-hmm. before someone got a hold to it. Then Barry got a hold to it, and then in, made quick work of it in, you know, in making the script for Moonlight. And then he, along with um, Adela Romansky and Andrew Hevia and all of the people uh, at Pastel now and um, James Laxton, um, people at Plan B, got together and, like, pushed so that there was like this 25 day window mm-hmm. where all these people again could be re- available but even then because Mahershala was like filming two other projects mm-hmm. he was doing he was in DC doing uh, House of Cards right. but then also doing something in New York but mm-hmm. then also flying back to do you know he was between Hunger Games and right. the, oh flying gosh. down to do this stuff and then Naomi Harris had like you know three days where she had to be there and then had to go back to London I mean literally people were mm-hmm. carving out time and space in to order make to make happen. this thing happen and I think what they read I think what everybody recognized was that you just witness when you get a group of people to pour that much energy and love into something mm-hmm. and only be worried about all they or all they be concerned about all they are chasing is the right mm-hmm. color tenor you know when Janelle Monet is making time to just put her in, you know yeah. not be making music not producing music which she does so well mm-hmm. when those young boys are like you know literally having tutors at the school but so they can run off and change costumes and mm-hmm. you know do this and and again nobody everybody's being paid scale or less mm-hmm. and like to do this thing mm-hmm. um that's what the, that's what they recognized when they when they when they gave the piece best picture mm-hmm. that's what i think that those are best practices when you all when you feel you can feel that through the film that people are, are the passion por- behind it the passion to tell this particular story mm-hmm. um and not and again, not that all the other best pictures didn't do that, but I think the recognition of us doing that was something really important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I never thought of it as a me thing at all. <laughs> In fact, when they said best picture, I was like, awesome. What do I do? <laughs> like, what do I do? I just <laughs> walked by, right? Stage? I was like, I don't have to say anything, right? <laughs> cool. I was like, cool. Okay, let's all go. Just look good on your, in your white suit on stage. Stand there. I was like, and you I, did it. I did very briefly. I was like, guys, let's go. Like they gave it to us. Let's let's go. Where do you they... keep your Oscar? 
Uh, in my office. Just as a daily reminder? Just because it's the best place to keep it. Great. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know where else to put it. <laughs> it's like it should go in here, right? I don't have like a mantle or anything like that. So. Fair, fair, fair. Um, and just quickly, so do you feel like um, this period in time where um, stories like Moonlight are being told, Black Panther's coming out and it's the highest grossing Marvel film, which I know you're very excited about. I've I seen am. Twitter. I'm probably more excited. Follow my Twitter. Twitter. It will tell you all about how <laughs> excited about Black Panther I am. That's the only reason to follow me on Twitter. Is to really and for your gifts. For my gifts mm-hmm. of Yul Brynner mm-hmm. in uh, Ten Commandments. Um, and then Get Out as well being nominated this year. Do yeah. you feel like at this time... Oh, my God. Congratulations to <laughs> Daniel. That's yes, so right? dope. He's actually in Blue Orange at the Young Vic two years ago. I know. Yeah. I know. I saw him at, in Sucker Punch okay, with Anthony. yes. And we met a long time ago. Right. And I was like, I, I loved that piece. I wanted to do that piece so bad. I wanted to do it in America, in the States. Um, still one of the best plays I've ever seen by Roy, I think. Uh, I mean, it's one of the best plays I've ever seen, period. Mm-hmm. And it's by Roy, but mm-hmm. I just think it's one of the best plays. It's just amazing. Um, and to see him, you know, get so much recognition for that role is so great. It's really great. But more than anything, again, I think, you know, being connected to a community of artists is always fantastic. But mm-hmm. being connected to a community of, of black artists mm-hmm. on both sides of the pond, yeah, um, I just feel lucky. I've always felt so lucky for because of that. I Does mean, it inspire you to create more things? Because you know that like, does this feel like this the time is now? It all it just in, always... inspires me to create more things because they're just people who can do it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I, I've been friends with Ot Fan Bailey um, for about ten years now, and I've been trying to get him in a piece <laughs> of mine since that time, and it just has never happened, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But you know. Um, but to know that there's a person in the world who's doing great work and that you want to work with is sort of, um, is, is just thrilling. And on a completely separate note, I have to ask you this because Black Hogwarts was trending and I know that you were in that conversation. So yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. You have to choose one. If you could choose the Elder Wand, the Philosopher's Stone, or the Invisibility Cloak, which would you choose? Invisibility Cloak. Why? <laughs> Duh. Does that mean- <laughs> Let like me just talk for an hour. Did you, did you really not know that I would love to just be seen when I want to be seen and not seen when I don't want to be seen. <laughs> very fair. And the Elder Wand only gets people killed, so I'm good. Fair. Um, That's, it's very true. Yeah. But the Philosopher's Stone is also really powerful because you can bring people back. I When people leave, though, where do they go? And, mm. and do I need to disturb that? Is that up to me? <laughs> Plus, I'm House Slytherin, so I'm just always about the sneak. Which surprises me. It shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> it shouldn't. You're right. I don't know you that well, but... No, no. It just, it just shouldn't. <laughs> thank you so much, Rel. This has been great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.